Hello and welcome to the second episode of In Good Company on NCS Radio, a monthly podcast for working women with me, Atega Uagba. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. And also I'm the author of Little Black Book, which is a modern career guide for working women, which you can find in pretty much every bookshop out there. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better, but I'm not going to be doing that on my own, hence the name In Good Company. Along the way, I'll be quizzing the smart, successful, creative women I know about their careers and sharing some advice on how you can take control of yours. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Zing Seng, the UK editor of Broadly, which is Vice's female-focused channel. I'm going to be talking about everything from how she got her foot in the door of journalism to what makes a good pitch and what are the skills you need to be a successful writer or editor. Zing cut her teeth working at some of the coolest media publications around before being picked to head up broadly when it launched a few years ago, so she definitely knows what she's talking about. I'll also be sharing a few articles I've been reading lately that have really made me think and that I think you guys will really enjoy, including an essay on female competition in the workplace that's really stuck with me since I read it a couple of weeks ago. And of course, I'll be playing Career Agony Art, this time to a listener who's working in a marketing-related job, but for a corporate company and wants to work in a more creative field. And also a recent grad who's found themselves stuck between a rock and a hard place. First though, let's talk to Zing. Hi Zing, welcome to In Good Company. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So nice to see you. Um, you just got back from holiday, haven't you? Yeah, I'm feeling very relaxed, very tan. I got sunburnt for the first time in actual years. Oh, so no. that was a new experience. Oh no, where did you go? Uh, I went to the Algarve in Portugal. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And that was a nice sort of break after, because you've just announced that you have a book coming out. Yeah, so I just announced a book series called Forgotten Women and... Uh, the first two books, which I've been writing for the last year, are out in March to coincide with International Women's Day. So, Yay. nice little bit of joint. <laughs> yeah, I always say that International Women's Day is like feminist Christmas. Um, it really is. It really, yeah. really is. That's how I feel, because there's always so much going on, like so many events and yeah. books coming out and all of that sort of thing. So, um, it's, yeah, that's something to look forward to for everyone listening. But the reason that I've got you here today is obviously to talk more about your career and just to kind of pick your brains about how you got to where you are and share sort of your tips and tricks for how you sort of manage your working life with everyone listening. Um, so I guess, in, I guess I want to hear from you in your words, like what do you do and why do you do it? So I'm the UK editor of Broadly, which um, was started by Vice about three years ago, I think. Um, I've always been a journalist. I went to journalism school. Uh, my first two jobs were in fashion magazines. So I worked at Wonderland magazine in Dazed and Confused, uh, where I was their digital news editor. And then very briefly worked at Combini, which is sort of uh, a French pop culture website, uh, and then went to Vice to help launch Broadly. So you've always worked in that kind of culture, almost like cultural side of journalism. Yeah. What drew you to that? I guess because I spent a lot of my life just like fiddling about on the internet. I think I remember spending most of my uni years just looking at strange viral videos. This is before the word viral was even a thing, I think. Um, and I was known for being like the girl who knew weird shit about movies, about music, about books, about random 
pieces of internet culture. You know, um, I actually looked up when I joined Twitter and I actually must have joined it when it first launched because my Twitter's An early adopter. several, like quite frighteningly old. <laughs> That's the opposite of me. I feel like I'm always like last to the fold when it comes to. Like, I looked on Twitter like for a long, long time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I only really probably started using it when I felt like I had to for work. Except now I, I really, really enjoy it. I spend so much, too much time on Twitter. Um, I learn so much from it. But anyway, back to you. So you started out working journalism, and you said you did. You, you did a degree in journalism? Yeah, so I did my master's degree in journalism. Okay. And before that, I did my undergrad in politics and sociology. Okay. So it was a very kind of like, I mean, politics and sociology was great, but I don't think I could have ever seen myself going into academia or actual politics. Mm, I, yeah, I studied politics or part politics, politics and philosophy at uni. And I always used to get that question of, oh, so you're going to become a politician? And I just thought, absolutely not. No, it's... no, it was never for me. I mean, like now that I'm maybe a bit older, I can kind of see the value of people who go into politics. Like my mm. friend is running as a local councillor uh, this year and he's really loving it and I think he's going to be great. But when I was at uni, I think the last thing on my mind was doing something like run for election. Although yeah. now, obviously, um, with, you know, women getting in more into politics and getting better representation in politics, I think that's way more important maybe... Yeah young 18 year old me should have thought more about it yeah I think the way that I always thought about it and in fact still do think about it I wonder if you agree is whilst I like you say I think it's really important for more women to get into politics but for me personally I felt like there were other ways that I could try and affect the sort of changes that I thought were important Mm -hmm. besides being in office yeah definitely and I think that's why so many people are like you know me and you are attracted to like the culture industries because Mm. that's one way you can make a really big impact without having the big political machinery of, you know, I'm standing for Labour behind you. You can just kind of go off and do your own thing and be an independent operator, but still reach loads and loads of people. Yeah, exactly. Because I think what people don't realise is the sort of, the amount of compromise and red tape bureaucracy that is involved in being a politician. And obviously you're in a position to make certain changes and do certain things that, you know, we, you and I certainly can't, but that side of things um, has never really appealed to me. But I'm quite curious as to what your experiences of actually doing an MA... Like, do you think doing an MA in journalism is a necessary little of a prerequisite for becoming a journalist? I definitely don't think so. So, um, like, the I've been lucky enough to be in a position where I can hire people. And the people that I've hired so far in my career, they're not very many. I mean, it's like less than three, probably. <laughs> Um, like not, neither of them did a journalism degree or post or a postgraduate journalism degree. Um, and, you know, that doesn't make them any worse journalists. I think for me doing my master's was actually good in that I'd kind of almost not taken journalism seriously as a career before. Like mm-hmm. I liked writing, you know, when I, towards the end of my degree, I kind of thought, oh, maybe I should go into copywriting or, you know, like advertising, something that where I can write words, basically. And doing the master's in journalism made me kind of knuckle down and think, okay, this is actual like a career, there's a life, you know, you need to take this seriously. Like you need to think about like, where do you want to be in five years and all these kind of questions that I think if I tried to go into journalism straight out of undergraduate um, university, I would have just been like discouraged really easily. I would have just been like, oh, well, you know, maybe journalism's not for you. Like maybe just do something where you can just like write stuff. It doesn't really matter. Whereas doing the master's really taught me like very hard skills like reporting, research, like how to 
approach people and like interview subjects. Um, and that kind of made me take it more seriously as like an industry on its own and as a career path. Mm. So do you, would you say that doing that master's kind of gave you a sense of rigour or imparted a sense of rigour to the way you approach journalism? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, and I really, I really appreciate it uh, for that reason. And also it gave me great contacts because, you know, by the time you've paid money for that master's <laughs> degree, you will be like damned if you don't make it in journalism. Yeah. So as a result, lots of people that I went to uni with are now like in very good places, um, great publications doing amazing work. Uh, and it's and, you know, I've known them from the start. So we remember kind of being too poor to afford full price sandwiches and having to go to oh this guy called the Sandwich Man who <laughs> was on off City Road. And he would kind of sell cut price sandwiches to office workers. And there always be like a oh contingent of master students queuing up to get like one pound cheese sandwiches. So how did it come about that you ended up working for Broadly? Or say working for, you headed up the UK launch of yeah. Broadly when it started. How did that happen? So I was basically headhunted. Um, I wasn't really looking to move. Uh, and then I was approached by the founder of Broadly, Tracy Egan Morrissey, who used to be at um, Jezebel. And she was like, oh, I'm starting this new thing. Like, you know, your name kind of popped up. Uh, it turned out I'd actually commissioned and edited some of the writers who went on to become the founding staff of Broadly. And, you know, let's have a chat. And at the time, I was kind of like, uh, I don't really know. Like, I've really just, I just accepted a job. I was like a couple of months into my new job, really liking it. Mm. Don't know if I'm really ready to like jump again. Mm. Uh, and then I kind of thought about it, spoke to her, spoke to my friends, and it was just too good an opportunity to pass up. Because how often do you get a new women's publication launching? Um, especially nowadays when, you know, you get uh, magazines actually shutting down. I was about going to say, digital. they're folding yeah. quicker than they're launching. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like the opportunity to actually launch something new was really exciting. And what is it, How? what would you kind of describe? Because obviously you're an editor as well now. Mm -hmm. And actually I want to, I want for people listening who are perhaps interested in getting into journalism, what is the difference between writing and editing? Because I think a lot of people don't actually necessarily realise those two different roles mm -hmm. exist and are quite separate in yeah. some ways. Yeah, it's almost, it's it's a, they're weirdly really symbiotic because obviously I'm an editor, but I don't get to edit anything unless writers actually send me stuff and like write for me. But um, it's like an editor's kind of a, the invisible hand kind of guiding the text. So a lot of people think that what you read in magazines and newspapers is like the raw copy that someone has just filed on the day and it's just like landed on the front page without any kind of <laughs> tweaks or anything. That's that's actually not what happens. Like each piece will go through several rounds of edits, or at least I try to make sure it goes through several rounds of edits where we kind of not just take out the basic stuff like spelling mistakes or grammar mistakes, but we also kind of look at the piece and we're like, what is the structure of the piece? What are you trying to say with it? Like... Would it be better if someone, uh, if you got a new quote here, would it be better if like a case study was kind of formatted in a different way? Um, and you're really trying to figure out the voice of a writer, I think, and making sure that it aligns with the voice of the publication that you're editing for. And so there's a happy medium in between in which the writer's bringing all this new information to the reader, but he's present, but he or she is presenting it in such a way that for a broadly reader, they read it and they go, Oh, that's a broadly story, but it happens to be written by X, Y, and Z. Yeah, got it. And what sorts of stories do you sort of tend to, I guess, seek out or enjoy for broadly? What's your kind of point of view? 
I really like reported stories. And I think like reported stories was, won't really mean anything to you unless you're in journalism. It's like stories where uh, someone has actually either picked up the phone and spoken to someone or like gone out into the street and chatted to people. Um, I think a lot of journalism, especially uh, journalism from younger people, they tend to think, what do I need to do to write something? I need to have a point of view. I need to have an opinion. So they'll write like an opinion column or like a, you know, like what some people disparagingly call like a hot take on the issue of the day. <laughs> um, and those are those are really valuable pieces of journalism. Like I've learned so much stuff from people who are columnists like Hadley Freeman, who's amazing, yeah. who bring like a very unique take and perspective onto the issues of the day. But if you're a young journalist, and you're just starting out, um, you know, you kind of have to prove that you've earned your stripes. You've like earned the opinion that you're trying to put forth. And the basics of reporting, I think, are still really important. So it means that you have to be willing to speak to people, be challenged, be like, uh, seek out new perspectives and like learn to present and distill them in a way that makes sense to a reader. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about you trying to say, this is what I think. It's about you trying to go out and speak to people to figure out what, what does society think? What, what do they think of this issue? Like, uh, what do experts think? What do people on the street think? What do people who have personal experience of this issue think? Like that to me is like a great story because you've gone out and you've done the legwork. You've not just sat in pyjamas and kind of tried to dash something off because it's informed by the greater world. And I think that's where journalism can be really, really important because it can literally distill what's outside in the world into a sheet of paper or, you know, an online article for someone to read. I, yeah, I think that's so important. I think that's a really interesting distinction, actually, you've made about the types of um, stories that broadly tends to favour or or indeed just the idea of reported stories versus opinion columns. Because obviously, I think in the past couple of years, we've really seen the rise and to an extent fall, but mostly rise of a, a new genre, particularly online by women, which is the personal essay. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about the value of that. And I just quite intrigued as to your take on it because for instance there was that article that I think was about a year ago I think in fact I probably saw you share it on Twitter but about a year ago someone wrote something I think for the Atlantic about almost the kind of moral quandaries surrounding commissioning personal essays mm -hmm. as an editor and it really made me think because there is a little bit of I think pressure particularly in women to kind of mine their own personal experiences mm -hmm. for hashtag content yeah um, and I was just intrigued as to, like, what's your take as an editor on personal essays? What makes a good one? I kind of agree that there's a personal essay kind of industry boom, especially for women writers. And I think, you know, sometimes they can be really useful to actually get your foot in the door and to kind of prove, hey, I can actually write something. I can, like, sustain an argument. I can sustain a narrative. Um, I have, like, thoughts and opinions. And that can be really useful. Like, one of the first things that I wrote... Uh, as an intern for The Guardian ages and ages ago was like an opinion piece about, uh, I think Time or Newsweek magazine had put a front cover story that said something like, in China, women hold up half the sky. And I remember a commissioning editor from The Guardian came down to me and was like, can you write something on this? Because at the time I was probably the only Chinese person that they had <laughs> on the desk. And I was and like, so, laugh. yeah, no. Right, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was great. It was a good. It was a good experience for me. But at the same time, I knew again the it's kind of thing. It's indicative of a bigger problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that helped me get my foot in my door. That was like the first byline on anything I read. But then again, it was a real kind of double-edged sword because I was putting myself out there as like a Asian journalist, 
and what I was writing about was my own identity. And I was really kind of chagrined, I think, to find that a lot of the reader comments were just not rude, but were just very weird. Um, and I don't know, like, I don't know whether you get this as a as um, a woman of colour or whether it's uh, specifically like something that Chinese women experience, but I get a lot of very weirdly sexualized comments where it's like oriental flower vase or like, um, I have a wife who's Asian and all this kind of shit. From what I've heard from sort of Asian, female Asian friends of mine, that is that specific type of sexualization is something that happens to Asian women. So women of color, black women do get it, but in a different way. And yeah. so I don't think I would get that response. Yeah. Writing something about women of color. I think the kind of predominant narrative around women of color tends to be something different about anger and, mm -hmm. you know, aggressiveness. Um, but I really relate to what you just said about, like, it's a thing for me as well when I think about writing that if somebody approaches me to write something about my perspective as a woman of color, on the one hand, I want to write and I have so many opinions about that and I have a lot to say about it, but I don't want to just write just about race or mm -hmm. I also don't want to be approached to write just about race. I yeah. would like to be approached to write about, you know, obviously careers, which is something I talk about a lot, but culture or fashion or something, something where my sort of claim to that isn't just the fact that I am the only woman of colour mm -hmm. journalist or one of the few black journalists yeah. that person happens to know. So it's it's quite tricky because on the one hand, you have opinions mm -hmm. and you're qualified to talk about it. But on the other, that's not all you want to be. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's it's sad because it's a balancing act that, you know, both of us have to strike. Mm. But at the same time, it should be a balancing act that editors are also more aware of, you know, yeah. that you can't just approach uh, journalists of colour to write about issues to do with race and ethnicity. Like you should be approaching them on the daily to just write about stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I quite want to get your take on sort of pitching advice, because this mm -hmm. is something that I really struggled with when I was starting out. And I know a lot of people struggle with is what makes a good pitch? I kind of almost think that what makes a good pitch is, again, it kind of depends on what you're pitching. So if you're pitching, say, a reported story to me, what I want to know is who are you going to speak to uh, for it? Like what kind of uh, case studies, by which I mean like people who have experienced the thing that you're going to write about, uh, do you have? Like what are their stories? Um, but at the same time, I want to keep it short. So you want it like max two paragraphs long. Mm. Um, you don't want a dissertation link thing. You definitely, as an editor, don't want to receive like an email saying, I've written the thing already. Here's the Microsoft Word doc because you're probably never going to find time to like open that Microsoft Word doc and read the whole thing in its entirety. Um, and yeah, I think the thing about pitching is that there's no one good pitch, but what there is is good pitching practice. So, you know, you have to treat each pitch almost like it's an expendable thing. I know people kind of think of stories as like, oh, it's my little baby and I need to like place them with like a good family and like in like a nice publication and a good editor and stuff. But you have to be quite ruthless about your ideas. You have to accept that if you've already thought of them, it's highly likely unless you literally have an exclusive thing that someone else is already thinking about it and that they are already going out there and pitching it to people. So you have to be fast. You need to like be constantly developing like new ideas. And if you don't happen to hear back from someone, you can't take it personally. Um, you know, send it, send one or two chasing emails, um, really polite, and then, you know, just move on. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of uh, people struggle with. Like, I know people who are my age, several years in the industry, who have gone freelance, who, like, struggle with that as well. Because essentially, it feels bad. It's like you're getting rejected. But 
you are not your ideas. You can always come up with more ideas. Like that's what makes a good journalist that you're always coming up with fresh uh, ideas and like stories. Um, so you have to kind of keep moving. It's almost a bit like being a shark. Like the most, uh, the best freelancers I know just keep pitching stuff. Like even if I don't reply, they will just say, they will just kind of take it on the chin and then pitch again a couple of weeks later. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about your experiences working in journalism as a woman. Um, and funnily enough, with women who I tend not to focus too much on sort of women's experiences as a woman within specific industries. And it's more just about kind of giving a platform to people who happen to be women. That kind of tends to be my thing. But I've been thinking about it a lot recently, I think particularly in light of all the kind of Weinstein revelations and the experience of being a woman in the workplace in a very specific way is kind of at the forefront of most people's minds. So I'm curious as to whether you have found journalism to be a kind or welcoming place to be as a woman. Hmm. I guess because I came into journalism through fashion, which tends to be very female dominated. And if there are men in it, it's going to be gay men, um, which is probably a big generalisation. But, you know, that was my own personal experience of mm -hmm. it. The first editor who hired me was a gay guy called mm -hmm. Adam Welch. God bless him, the smartest <laughs> guy I know. Um, and, you know, I've always been lucky to have those kind of like mentors who are like women who kind of took me on their wing, whether officially or unofficially, and like gay men who were like, you can do this, don't mm. worry about it, you can just do it. Mm. Um, so I've been lucky in that sense. So I've kind of progressed along in my career without ever having to confront, I confront uh, the sexism that I know that some of my other female peers in like uh, publications like newspapers, or like news desks have had to deal with. Ah, oh, really? Okay, so that's where the distinction possibly lies in that you are working in a naturally more female-dominated sector of journalism. I hadn't thought yeah. about it that way. Yeah, or at least that's where I got my kind of legs. So by the time I had kind of made my mistake, made my, like, you know, fledgling mistakes and, like, kind of got on my feet a bit, I was in this kind of, like, quite nurturing environment. Not to say it was, wasn't challenging, it wasn't difficult, but it wasn't... I didn't have the added burden of, like sexism to kind of think gender about gender dynamics yeah and gender dynamics between a straight male boss and me to think yeah. about and how have you found being a woman online I know that, that is a kind of weird nebulous term but obviously a lot of the work that you do um exists online and you know you're active online on say twitter and that sort of thing how, have you found what have you found that experience to be like it's kind of been a it's been interesting, I think, because uh, up until recently, until I joined Broadly, I was sort of like the audience I cultivated on Twitter, for instance, is mainly like fashion and pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's not a lot of trolling that goes on, at least not that I experienced for being a woman writing about stuff like pop culture and fashion. Um, when I started commissioning writing about like political stuff, for instance, that's when I really realized that you could really get a lot of abuse for it. So, for instance, I didn't. I tweeted something very innocuous about Chad Evans, and oh God, you say innocuous about Chad Evans, but that has been a lightning rod for yeah. male chauvinists. Yeah, which is which crazy. is yeah. Of all the kind of like things that I've ever tweeted about, anyway. So yeah, that my mentions were a mess for like several days, and there's nothing you can really do about it because just the fact that you are a woman in that space makes you a target for abuse. Mm. 
Between leading the UK Broadly team, commissioning, editing and writing articles, and of course the little matter of writing a book around her full-time job, it's fair to say that Zing's got a fair bit on her plate. I was curious to find out what her working day or week looks like and how she manages her time. So every day at Broadly is kind of different. Um, I might be presenting a video, I might be writing, I might be responding to pitches, I might be editing uh, a pitched piece, um, editing my staff writers' pieces, um, managing the homepage so it looks good. Uh, Every day is sort of like a little bit different. So it's kind of hard to say what a typical day is. Um, When I was writing the two books, I would just do my full day of work, go home and keep working. Oh my God, that's (laughs) exhausting. And how long did you say that you spent working on that? Several months. So I feel like since February, I think. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's definitely taught me that if you really push yourself, you can produce a lot of things. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so there isn't really a typical day. I usually find that even though I would like to be the kind of person who uses stuff like Asana and, you know, I cow to plan all my, like, all my days down to the minute. I just am not that person. What would you say is the most challenging aspect of what you do? I think juggling all of it um, and kind of juggling all the different skills and, like, making sure that you're cultivating them and, like, developing yourself in all these different areas. So, for instance... Uh, when I started out doing journalism, I did not expect to be in front of the camera. Um, but that's somewhere where I've just like found myself um, presenting documentaries, which has been a huge learning curve and very, very fun, but completely different to writing and editing and commissioning stories. How is How so? I think when you're working with the with a film crew, it's actually a much more collaborative enterprise because you're actually interacting with people face to face. Whereas sadly, and this might be different for people who work on like, in big teams on newspapers or magazines. Most of my interaction with people who write for me is over email, so it's slightly impersonal. And, you know, it's always a sense of, here I go, responding to another email <laughs> behind a computer. Whereas if you're filming with a documentary crew, you're out and about, you're like constantly chatting to people and it's very different. But at the same time, they demand different energies from you. So I can concentrate really, really hard on like editing a piece and I'm in the zone for like, two straight hours like not looking up at anything like not pausing to go to the toilet or take a break or anything but if you're filming on your feet all day like you're constantly being assailed by stuff you're like you know uh who are we talking to next like when are we going to get back to um when are we going to get back with all this equipment like do we have other equipment with us like uh where are the interview questions that kind of thing Mm. so it's very different kind of juggling of priorities but I think that's what keeps my job really interesting because I know plenty of people in journalism who just sit and write and they love that. They just love being behind a screen and like bashing stuff out. But I think I would just get really bored. What would you say is the, well, would you, which part of your job do you think people would find most surprising if they knew? I think the editing bit, because I think a lot of people are, you know, don't realise that when they read magazines or newspapers, like it's actually gone through loads of rounds and at the final text might be very different to what was originally submitted um, just because you know you need to change stuff you need to like move with the times you need to like react to you know there might be something that someone wrote for me that doesn't take into account all the stuff that's been happening in Hollywood and then we'll be like can you go back and insert that stuff because that's what makes it timely and you know I think a lot of people tend to think that editing isn't a hard job but it really is because sometimes when you're faced with like a 2,500 word story you're like 
where what we are where do I begin where do I begin yeah exactly and it takes a lot of focus and a lot of blue sky thinking I think to try and figure out the story Mm. because it's in there um but it's a job of the editor to work with the writer to figure that out and I always say that you know a lot of writers when they first start out as journalists are like I submitted it um the copy is like so different like I'm really mad that this got changed and it's like trust that the editor is doing what's best for the article especially considering that she's the one who commissioned it for you uh, mm. for her own publication and that she wants to get the best out of this piece um I think a lot of journalists like with time and definitely this this is my experience as well get a lot less precious of the words they write I was about to say I feel like that's something particularly I mean not just freelance writers but you do have to learn to be open to mm-hmm. people to be editable mm. to be open to an editor's opinions and trust that they probably have a, a sort of a sense of perspective that you don't have and that is why in many ways an editor is necessary whether it's an article or a book it's because once you're completely immersed in something and do you know I, I often feel like if I'm sending something to an editor like I'm so grateful and glad for that sort of second pair of eyes mm-hmm. on, what, on what I've written because I've lost the ability to self-edit after a certain point. Like, I can't make this any better. I can't see, or or not now. It's like, I probably need, like, a week or two away from it and then look back at it. But that's the beauty of having an editor because they come in at that point where you've kind of exhausted all your ideas and your energies on it and they're like, okay, here is another perspective. Here is how it could be even better. Um, So that's cool. And the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about before we move on to our next segment is whether... What are the things that you wish you'd known about your career or industry when you were starting out, if anything? That there are way more skills that you need to have beyond just being able to be a good writer. So, you know, for instance, I didn't realise editing was really a thing that people did full time and that there were editors who just never wrote. Um, They just edited stuff. Um, I didn't know that there were people called sub-editors who would then do kind of the fine-tuning of a piece before it goes to print. Um, You find them in newspapers and magazines especially. They'll be the ones who are coming up with funny headlines and, like, funny stand-firsts, and they're the ones who are going to, like, really zero in on all the the finer details of the text. And they're the ones who, like, arrange stuff and make sure, design stuff and make sure it looks good on the page. Um, People who do stuff like podcasting, for instance, like, that was a skill that I never learned at university, which I wish they had taught us stuff like how to take pictures on a DSLR, like all of these are like really important skills. And the freelancers that I really love to hear from are people who are like, yeah, just go take pictures, it's fine. And then you get the pictures and you're like, wow, these are great. Yeah, And And this is not even your like first skill. (laughs) Before I let you go, I want to do a quick rapid fire round. So Mm -hmm. don't think too much about the answers to these questions. Don't worry, there's nothing crazy. First question if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would have been your plan B? I think I would have been an artist or something. Really? Yeah. What's but I would be very, medium? I would, I don't know. Just like an artist yeah. generally. Cool. I think I would have gone to art school. Really? Yeah, but I, sadly I do not think my parents would have appreciated that. So. <laughs> um, are you an early bird or a night owl? Night owl. What's the last book you read? Uh, Zadie Smith's latest. So, Swing Time? Yes. What did you think of that? I enjoyed it. Um, I liked it a lot better than NW. Did you read that? See, I haven't read NW. I did read, I, do you know what, I read Swing Time 
I think what slightly tainted the experience for me was that I went along to, I think, a reading of hers when it came out. And the person interviewing her sort of gave away the ending. Oh, no. And so I read it with that in the back of my mind. Yeah. I think it really changed the experience. I didn't I didn't love it as much as... So I think my favourite Zadie is... Um, what's it? I forgot the name. On Beauty. Right, yeah. I absolutely love. I haven't read that. I really, really love it. Um, but I wasn't as taken with Swing Time as I expected to be, especially as I think the reviews about it were... There was there was a lot of talk of that being like one of her best or her best from a lot of people. There was a lot of hype around it. Maybe that just happens because it's like any time a Zadie Smith book comes yeah. through, it's like oh my god, like Manna from Heaven. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's intriguing. But yeah, um, what's your worst working habit? Procrastinating. Oh my god, same. Especially emails. I'm such a procrastinator. I'm still trying to figure out what the key to kicking that habit is. Because I think it's my downfall. I when think I, it's my worst quality. When I wrote, started writing the books, I was procrastinating a lot, oh, as you can imagine. And um, the one thing I really that really helped me was the Pomodoro timer thing. Yeah. So you can find so you can find it online. It was just like an online timer. It was start the clock at twenty five minutes. And for some reason, I don't know, you know, if this will apply to anyone else, but my brain registers twenty five minutes as being like, oh, that's nothing. It's like twenty minutes. That's whatever. I can write for like solidly for that. And then you start writing it, and that's the difficult part. You get over the hump of having to put words to the laptop screen, as it were. Mm. And then once you're off, you're off. Yeah, I've, I think for a while, I remember when I was sort of, when I was trying to set Women Who Up and all of the work and late nights and also writing a little black book around it, I went into it. I developed this system, which for a couple of months just absolutely worked a treat for me, where I would work for, it was longer than 25 minutes, so I'd work for... 90 minutes and then take a half hour break work for 90 minutes take a half hour break and then I'd have like a really long lunch break so maybe like an hour two hours if I felt like it and then just keep doing that and f- and because my next break was never too far away mm. like kind of and also the breaks were quite substantial yeah. themselves like half an hour so you can actually chill and it was all guilt-free um and so there was a couple of months where that really really worked for me I've fallen out of that habit now, but I think I need to try and get back oh, into it. Oh, I need it. to try that. It was, yeah. That sounds was, good. It's very good. Um, how would you describe yourself in three words? Quick, smart, funny. Yeah, I definitely agree with those. Those are yeah. really good. That's a very self-aware um, way of describing yourself. How, how do you think the people you work with would describe you in three words? <laughs> Hopefully very, very competent. Okay, <laughs> if my good. boss is listening. And last of all, how would you like to be remembered? Someone who made a difference or someone who made someone feel, people feel good about themselves. That's really noble. I think you're doing that. Um, thank you so much for joining me. I, where can people find you and your work? And So you can read my stuff on Broadly uh, at broadly.vice.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Miss M-I-S-S Zing. That's the best handle, by the way. It was basically so, so good. It's basically supposed to be me making a pun on my name because I knew no one would ever be able to spell my last name. Yeah, that's oh, that is such a bugbear of mine of people spelling or misspelling. I've started a new, um, a new approach, which is that if someone emails me and they misspell my name, I just don't reply. And it's and you'd be surprised at how many times I've had to do it since instituting it, like three or four weeks ago. And if someone, because it just, I don't know why, it just really annoys me and people spell my name wrong. And yeah, it's kind of like, well, you've gone to the extent of writing a whole email to me. Why can't you get my name right? Exactly. And I'm so, 
conscientious then about making sure I spell people's names right. Yeah. Because I yeah. know how much I hate it. I always feel so awful if I accidentally misspell someone's yeah, name. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yes, okay, follow Zing at Miss Zing. Um, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, now it's time for Ask Otega, i.e. time for me to play Agni to your work-related problems. The first letter I've got is from a recent grad who is working in a more corporate environment but wants to work in a more creative field. Here it is. Dear Otega, I'm a recent marketing grad with a load of experience in publicity and marketing, and I'm currently enrolled in a marketing-related grad job in a corporate company. Whilst I'm grateful for all my experiences, I really feel as though marketing isn't for me especially within large corporate companies. My passion lies in the creative field, i.e. design and writing, and I'm desperate to move into the sector, whether for a smaller brand or a startup or whatever. My question is, how? I have absolutely no idea where to begin, and I also worry that doors won't open for me in creative areas as my experience is related to straight-laced marketing. I feel like it's too late to go back to university to study a separate degree, plus it's far too expensive and that I won't even be taken seriously for an internship because of my lack of creative experience. Any advice would really be appreciated. I have to say that I really relate to this question when it landed in my own books. I just thought, oh gosh, I mean, I've been in a similar position when I started out working in advertising, which isn't corporate by most people's standards, but much as I sort of really enjoyed that, and advertising is a sort of really cool and interesting industry and you get to work on exciting problems and with really cool brands, I was quite lucky. Um, I worked at some really great agencies. Um, but after a couple of years, I realised that I didn't necessarily feel creatively fulfilled um, and I kind of developed itchy feet. And because I wanted to write more, I really had always wanted to write and I wasn't getting to do that as part of my job. So I definitely know what it's like to feel like you're doing one thing or doing one type of job and wanting to kind of completely pivot into a new sort of role or industry or field and worrying about not having the right experience. Um, the first thing that I would say is that you definitely don't need a specific degree to get into creative industries or into creative jobs. Um, I think sometimes it can be helpful to have, you know, a, a degree, let's say, in design or whatever, but these days you can... There are other ways of getting the skills that you need. Like, for instance, you could do a course or retrain or do a sort of an adult learning course, which is something that you could fit in around your day job. So there are so many great like adult learning centers around. I can think of one if you're London based, which is City Lit, and you can definitely do sort of a design course or a class around your day job and at the weekend. So that's something you can do that doesn't involve you just sort of quitting and going back to uni, which is a really huge undertaking. If writing is something that you're interested in, which is what you mentioned in your letter, just start. Like You don't need permission to become a writer. Um, and every writer, every freelance writer or journalist has started by just pitching an editor. Um, and obviously you heard some tips for effective pitching from Zing earlier. But I would say just kind of make a list of the sorts of publications that you want to write for, find out who the commissioning editors are and get in touch with them. Obviously, when you're sort of trying to pitch for the first time, having relevant clips, so, you know, examples of your previous work is really important because often when you pitch an editor for the first time, they'll want to see what you've written before. So start working on getting clips, whether it's even just starting your own blog, which is something you can do and that can really showcase, you know, that you can write and your writing style and that you can, you know, string a sentence together. So if it's a question of needing clips or needing 
um, examples of your previous work, but you don't have any, and that can be a bit of a catch-22, then start by just starting your own blog and writing your own personal essays there. Not necessarily personal essays, but writing things that, almost briefs that you've set yourself um, to kind of showcase that to people when you eventually pitch them. Or you could write for quite unexpected outlets. Like, you know, in your industry, there are probably loads of trade publications who are always looking for articles written by people who work in that industry. So getting in touch with those sorts of publications with a pitch might be sort of your foot in the door. And again, that will just be building up a little bit of a bank of articles that you've written, depending on what type of writing you want to do. Um, But yeah, I feel like the thing is with writing is that people often think that you need some sort of magic wand Um, to suddenly become a writer but you are a writer just by virtue of whether you write in your sort of for your own private consumption whether it's stuff that you don't necessarily share with people if you're writing then you are a writer so just kind of taking that next step to just getting in touch with editors and pitching them um, is sort of where you should start in terms of worrying about being too corporate for creative industries I think the thing that you probably haven't realised is that you shouldn't underestimate the sort of experience that you've gained from working within a corporate context. I think a lot of sort of companies and businesses in the creative fields actually really appreciate that kind of rigour. Like I think a lot of people from a more corporate background often have like a sort of commercial awareness and commercial skills that can be very useful in creative companies, which actually often very often lacking in that sort of thing. So don't kind of rule out the experience you have as being too corporate and not important. Like you should maybe think about a more lateral move. Um, You know, be open to the idea that you might not be able to make that pivot just in one leap. Maybe it's about transitioning to do the job that you do now for a more creative company. So still doing the kind of marketing publicity side of things, but not for a corporate company, a more creative company. And on the side, also picking up some freelance writing work Or, you know, if the design thing is something you want to pursue, maybe it's doing a design course in your free time in the evenings or the weekends. Um, I'm sure, you know, you're probably feeling like, gosh, I really want to make that change now. But think about the fact that it might take, you know, maybe it's sort of changing halfway to a more creative field with your next job move and then the job move after that or promotion or you know if you get into a creative company maybe you might be able to transition from working on the marketing and publicity side to a more creative role within that you haven't really sort of specified what sort of company you want to work for but be open to the idea that it might take you a couple of steps um, to get to the position that you want to be and that's not necessarily a bad thing because it also allows you to sort of dip your toe in the water and see whether you actually do want to do that sort of thing I think a lot of people can hold working in creative roles almost sort of put that on a pedestal and you really need to test that and see that it's right for you which is why for instance taking a bit of freelance writing work outside of your day job could be really helpful because you can actually test and see that you enjoy that I think a more drastic option is to sort of go back to the start, like you mentioned, start interning. Um, If that's something that you really feel like you want to do, or I wouldn't worry that you're not going to, you know, you don't have enough experience to get an internship because the beauty of internships is that that's supposed to be where you get the experience and they're supposed to teach you. So the fact that you already have actual proper working experience of working in jobs will stand you in good stead. And I imagine when applying for internships, you'd be ahead of a lot of the competition by virtue of having some sort of work experience anyway. So don't worry about that but also don't think that you have to kind of quit and throw it all in and throw out all your experience so far 
and go right to the start because I think you're probably in a position to make more lateral moves. So maybe think about that. But yeah, I hope that helps. And please do feel free to sort of get in touch and let me know how you've gotten on. The next letter is from a recent grad who's struggling a bit to get their foot on the career ladder. And I decided to get Zing, who you heard from earlier, to share her thoughts on nailing the job hunting process when you've just left uni. Dear Otega, I'm a recent graduate with an undergraduate degree from a good university, a master's from studying abroad, lots of lovely references, a ton of internships and work experience, and an inbox full of job rejections. I don't think I'm being too ambitious in the jobs I'm applying for, but although everyone who sees my CV says it's impressive, no one seems willing to make the leap to actually offering me a salary. I hate to sound jaded, but it seems like employers either expect graduates to be completely useless, or they ask for the moon. One publisher's demanded a two-day interview and for applicants to come up with five different book campaigns that we could use, all for a minimum wage year-long trial period, with no guarantee of a job at the end of it. It's coming up to five months of applying for things now. Can you give any guidance at all? Yours sincerely, nearly jaded grad. That pretty much sounds like my entire experience when I left uni and was kind of on the job hunt. I wouldn't wish that experience on anyone. I think it's a lot harder these days. And I'm sure that's the sort of thing that anyone sort of above a certain age, anyone who's not millennial will disagree with me and say it's always been hard. But I do think today's graduates are in a really, really difficult environment. Competition is really fierce. And to top it all off, you're probably lugging about 30 grand worth of debt behind you that you're keen to pay off. Um, So nearly jaded grad, you really do have my sympathies. Um, I mean, there's a couple of pointers that I'm going to give and Zing, feel free to jump in whenever. But I think the thing that stands out to me is, you know, you've said that you've got lots of impressive, impressive achievements and I'm, I'm sure you do, but are you actually selling yourself when it comes to your CV and applications? You know, it might be really impressive and I've seen this myself. I've seen people send me their CVs or I've seen cover letters that people have done and they just do a really poor job of actually selling themselves and proving to an employer why they'd actually be good and useful for them. So like mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier saying that you've kind of hired people, like what kind of makes almost like a good application or a good cover letter or how do people kind of need to structure things to get their foot in the door? I think, so I'm going to assume this person wants to get into publishing mm. and it might be very different, but with journalism, I always find that people can be kind of overly formal, especially when they're starting out in their career. Um, when the majority of journalists I know are just very sharp-witted, informal kind of people, they don't respond well to like, dear sir, I would like to put forward my CV for your consideration. Mm. Like that to a journalist already says, I don't know how to tailor my writing for the person I'm writing to. Um, so that's my first thing. Like, are you speaking to them in their language? Um, when you've, you know, gone to internships at other companies, how have they, how have people, you know, in that industry t- sp- spoken to each other on email? Like, how do they chat to each other? Like, speak their language and show that you kind of understand the way the workplace works. Because mm. then people will think, oh, I can imagine this person sl- slutting into my company, no problem. Like, they won't stand out. Um, they like understand the lingo. So like, think about that. Um, You know, like, are you tailoring your language um, and your CV, your application letter 
to the companies that you're trying to apply to. So true, because you can tell when an email or a letter is like a template email, like not actually picking out any points about the company, what they've done recently, that like every single letter you send out or cover letter application should, you know, you can't, it takes time. That's the thing, like applying for jobs in itself is almost like a full-time job, which is super annoying, but it takes time. Like you should be spending a good amount of time on your applications and making sure that, you know, each one actually couldn't, it almost couldn't be sent anywhere else. Mm -hmm. That is, I think, probably the sign of a really good tailored application. If you swapped out the name, you know, of the hiring manager, whatever, could you send this somewhere else? If you could, then it's probably not specific enough. So I feel like that's um, really good advice. So I was mentoring someone who was applying for um, production companies and, you know, she knew she wanted to work in TV and production. Um, But she, but I was like, you know, you know, you're applying for this company, like, what have you seen of theirs on TV? And she'd be like, oh, I can't think of any. And I was like, you need to be coming out with that, like, straight out of the gate. Like, you know, what have you watched? What would what did you enjoy? Like, which department would you like to be in? Do you want to be in factual? Do you want to be in, like, uh, scripted? Like, you know, you need to know all these things in order to impress them and show that you know what their company is about. And another thing I think about that letter is that you say you've done internships at other places. Have you kept up with those companies maybe like reach out to a person that you're working closest with at those companies and say, hey, I interned for you. Like, I would love to take you out for a coffee. Like, you know, like, let's meet up, you know, keep up those relationships because you never know those people might think of you when there's going to be a spot opening at their company and then they'll just like slip you a little like tip off. Like you have to like keep up the relationships and keep, um, you know, keep talking to the people, even if you kind of, left that company and you thought oh maybe that wasn't for me it's always still good to keep in touch with people from the industry that's so true and they might move on somewhere else you know move to a different company that is hiring and I think that's such a good point actually because so many of my jobs that I had when I was working full-time say in advertising most of my jobs I didn't get through applying cold or let's like seeing like a job posting online being like oh I'd like to join that and sending in it was always almost always through contacts and networks and people that I knew or people thinking of me people picked me for people recommended me for stuff so don't underestimate how much actually spending the time building relationships with people Mm -hmm. can be your way in especially if like you say you've done internships um and I I know it's kind of a two two part answer as well because on the one hand that kind of talks about applying but if you for instance and you didn't say in your letter so I can only assume, but if you're getting, say, invites to interviews but no offers, then that's probably a sign that you need to work on your interview technique. And, I mean, in that case, what I'd suggest is having someone sort of do practice interviews with you. Um, I wouldn't actually suggest, because you say you've recently graduated, I wouldn't suggest that it's your peers or friends because they probably have a similar amount of experience to you, which is next to none. Like, try and find someone older than you, who's been working, you know, at least a couple of years, maybe been on the hiring side of the table. It doesn't even have to be in the same industry because I think it's just someone who has working experience yeah. and getting them to, like, fake interview. With yeah, you. and also someone who's been through various job interviews themselves and knows how, you know, HR stuff will work and, like, the kind of questions that someone might lob at you. Mm. Like, that's really valuable, I think. Yeah, because I think giving good interview is a real skill. And once you've mastered it, that can really just kind of push. But if, you know, but, you know, conversely, if you don't have it, even if you're the most qualified candidate and you've got like a PhD and whatever it is that you're applying to do, but if you walk into an interview room 
and you're not gelling and, you know, you're not kind of able to present yourself well, then unfortunately you won't get the job. And I think something that's actually important to say about interviews, and it kind of relates to what you were saying, Zing, earlier about being a bit informal, but is to view it as just a friendly conversation. I think people kind of tend to build up this idea of interviews in their head where it's in their heads where it's like, you know, like big scary thing. It's like go in there knowing that people the person interviewing you wants you to do well because then it means they can stop the whole hiring process. Yeah. Like everyone hates hiring. Like it's time consuming, it's boring, it's expensive. People want to like finish it as soon as possible. So they're hoping that every candidate that comes in is really, really great because then it's like, oh thank God I found my person. I don't have to do any more of this interview. Exactly. Crap. So go in with that attitude of like, oh, they want me to do well. Like they're rooting for me. It's not a test. It's not a trick question scenario. It's just, I always used to treat interviews as just like a chilled, friendly conversation. And obviously do your prep, be prepared, know the company, but don't see it as like, you know, a test or like a big hurdle that you have to climb over. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I think there's a lot to be said for, you know how people, when they just naturally chat, they just start mirroring each other's body language and movements and stuff like that. If you're friendly, they'll be friendly back to you. Like, exactly. And I think that's very true. If you're stiff and awkward and informal, it'll just, the vibe will like pervade the room and then every, then the whole thing will become stiff and awkward and informal. Uh, and formal. Yeah. So just go in there and like kind of G yourself up into like being that person. Like I always like to think of it as, when and I was a very nervous person especially at the start of my career I was like always waiting for the other shoe to drop being like oh they're gonna decide they fucking hate me tomorrow (laughs) so I would kind of always try and like think back to like you know there's always this one party that you've been to that where you just felt like the most amazing sparkling charismatic person in the room probably Mm. because you've had maybe one or two drinks and people were like really like listening to what you said they were really loving it um, just try and be that person. Just like imagine you're back at that party, the best party of your life, and just like try and bring some of that sense of charisma in with you. I think there's a lot to be said for trying to brainwash yourself into being a more like uh, confident person because Very true. I feel like that's definitely what I had to do to get over like my first time industry nerves when I got into journalism. Make it till you make it. Yeah. That's the advice. Um, yeah, I hope that helps and good luck with that. I think... It is really com- competitive out there as a recent grad. So, and bear in mind, five months, obviously it feels like an eternity, but it does actually take a while of getting better. Like you're probably better at the application process now than you were when you started it. And even that is a learning curve that will eventually pay off because you'll get so good at it that you'll actually land a job. So good luck with that. Good luck. That's it for this month's segment of Ask a Tega. Don't forget, if you've got a career question that you're struggling with and that you'd like my opinion on, you can just email podcast at womenwho.co and I'll do my best to help in our next episode. And finally, it's time for the In Company Book Club, which is me sharing the things that I've been reading recently that I've found particularly interesting or inspiring or informative and that I think you guys might like. I've actually just got one thing this week, which is an article that I read recently by Laurie Penny, who is a writer, a journalist and a critic. She writes a lot about feminism and politics and sort of gender dynamics um, for lots of different magazines and sort of media publications. And something that caught my eye recently was her essay called Non-Compete Clause, which she wrote for The Baffler, which is all about female competition in the workplace and the narrative that you know, women can't necessarily work well together and it's all very sort of devil wears Prada and toxic and super bitchy when women work together. Um, 
And she essentially makes the argument that that narrative is a result of internalised sexism. And there was just a lot about the essay that really spoke to me. And she, you know, one of the things she talks about that because, you know, there's an idea, I think, amongst women, unfortunately because of the systems that we live in, patriarchal society that we are forced to work in, is that there are only a few seats at the table and... You know, there was a line in it, which I'm going to read out, which just really spoke to me. And she says, the suspicion of scarcity makes the competition desperate, that there are only so many places in the world for talented people who happen to be female. And I think that explains so much about why there might be female competition in the workplace. But another thing that I really struggle with and which she kind of talks about really well in her essay is the fact that, you know, often, you know, men are just as competitive in the workplace. Well, this is something that I think men are just as competitive in the workplace, but their behaviour doesn't get ascribed to their gender. You know, in women, if you act in a certain way, it's kind of called bitchy and, you know, you kind of get that kind of catty stereotype and narrative. But men also behave badly, but they don't get sort of... It's not assigned to gender, which I think is really interesting. Um, so I would definitely seek that essay out if you've got time. It's makes a fascinating reading. Um, and it also reminded me of one of an essay that I really love, one of my favourite essays, which is by the journalist Anne Friedman, uh, where she breaks down shine theory, which is a concept that she and her sort of podcast co-host, Aminati Sal, I think it is, uh, came up with, which is just the argument that rather than seeing other women as your competition, it actually makes far more sense to team up with and support one another in our sort of attempts to advance our careers. And it's just such a beautiful um, concept and something that I really wholeheartedly believe in. And I would make sort of required reading in all schools and workplaces if I could. Um, but yeah, that's another article that I think should seek out. The article by Anne Friedman is actually pretty old. I think it was written in 2013. But it's such a timeless piece of writing that I return to time and time again. So seek that out. Please feel free to tweet me at Women Who and let me know what you're reading. I love getting new book recommendations, essay recommendations, article recommendations. So yes, share what you're reading with me and I might share it on next month's episode. And that's it for this month. Thank you for listening to Ingen Company. I hope you picked up at least a couple of new ideas to help you work better. For more where that came from, follow me at Atayi Wagba on Instagram and Twitter. Or you can follow Women Who at Women Who or head to www.womenwho.co. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes to get the next episode of In Good Company straight to your phone next month. And please make sure you rate us and give us a review. Sharing is caring, obviously, so if you enjoy this episode, make sure you tell all of the working women in your life. See you next month. Yeah, yeah.